as Alicia just said to the children each year in the, the beginning of the season of Lent, we remember that Jesus fasted in the desert for 40 days and that he was tempted by Satan. When I think of temptation, I think of something as relatively harmless as having a second helping of dessert or as serious as saying something unkind or untrue about someone I don't get along with. But I have to admit that I've never been tempted to try to turn a stone into bread or to worship the devil in exchange for authority over the kingdoms of the world or to throw myself down from the pinnacle of a temple relying on God to send angels to protect me. But this story about the temptation of Jesus is just that, only that, a story, an old story from an old book, a story that is of little or no use to us unless we understand that Jesus actually faced the same sort of temptation that we face. As the early church was trying to understand the incarnation, trying to understand what we mean when we say that Jesus is fully human and fully divine, there were some who stressed the humanity of Jesus at the expense of his divinity, and others who stressed the divinity of Jesus at the expense of his humanity. In response to those who minimized the humanity of Jesus, a fourth-century bishop of Constantinople, known as Gregory the Theologian, concluded that if Jesus was not fully human, well, we've got a big problem. Because as Gregory put it, that which Jesus has not assumed, in other words, that which Jesus has not taken on himself, he has not healed. What Gregory was saying was that God's plan for redeeming humanity involved joining the divine and the human in Christ Jesus. And because Jesus is fully human, he faced the same temptations we face. If we look a little below the surface, we'll see that Jesus did, in fact, face the same sort of temptation we face. As Barbara read to us, he fasted 40 days and 40 nights, and afterward he was famished. The tempter came and said to him, If you're the Son of God, command these stones to become a loaf of bread. Well, Jesus was hungry. Indeed, hunger was rampant throughout first century Palestine. So what harm could there be in turning a stone into a loaf of bread? But there's such a thing as doing the right thing for the wrong reason. And in this story, Jesus wasn't being tempted to feed the multitude, but to perform a miracle on cue, on demand. Now, we're all familiar with humble bragging and virtue signaling and can probably think of examples of people doing the right thing for the wrong reason. There's the celebrity who shows up to feed the homeless and disappears when the cameras are turned off. Or the people who seem to post all their good deeds on social media. And then we read that the devil took Jesus to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. And he said to him, I will give all of these to you if you fall down and worship me. And the Jewish people had been waiting for a Messiah, someone who would overthrow their Roman oppressors, so what harm could there be in giving the people what they wanted? 
what harm could there be from, in taking power from the people who have abused it? But God had an even greater calling for Jesus. Not just to liberate the people of Israel, but to affirm a different kind of society. One that stood in stark contrast to the Roman Empire. A society that values the meek and those who hunger and thirst for righteousness and those who make peace. Not to liberate Israel alone, but to redeem all creation. I would imagine that many of us have been tempted by power in ways that are both obvious and subtle. We may harbor a secret or not so secret desire to be a rock star or a billionaire or simply to have the last word in an argument. And as Barbara read to us, the devil took him to the holy city and placed him on the pinnacle of the temple, saying to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it's written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up so that you will not dash your foot against a stone. At the time, Jesus was an obscure, fledgling, itinerant preacher from a backwater called Nazareth. What harm could there be in a demonstration of power to grab people's attention? Perhaps a few people had heard about the Holy Spirit descending like a dove at his baptism, but surely this would settle once and for all that he was the Son of God. But God sent Jesus to walk among the least, the last, and the lost. I would imagine that Many of us have been tempted by what Henry in on a little secret. Bear with me if I've mentioned this before. I know I repeat myself sometimes, but you know, all I have ever really wanted from life was to just stroll out and wave to cheering throngs. <laughs> Doesn't seem like that much to ask. But you know, sometimes the, the temptation to be spectacular is a little more subtle like when I'm trying to juggle more packages than I can handle, but insist on trying to open the door without help. So it seems to me that the temptation Jesus faced in the wilderness, the temptation to do the right thing for the wrong reason, the temptations of power, and the temptation to be spectacular are not at all unlike the temptations we face today. So how do we handle these temptations? If Jesus faced the same temptations that we face, then we would probably do well to follow the same spiritual practices that he followed. The season of Lent, the season of repentance and introspection, provides a wonderful opportunity to renew our commitment to prayer and meditation and fasting. Some of you may remember that several years ago, Bishop Youngjin Cho challenged Methodists throughout the Virginia Conference to devote an hour each day to prayer. I don't know about you, but I'm pretty sure I didn't last more than a week. Because unless I'm binging on Netflix or casting a fly line or hanging out with a good shepherd youth, an hour is a long, long time. And many, if not most of us, can't recall the last time we observed a Sabbath, devoting an entire day to rest. 
So perhaps I could offer just a few practical suggestions about these three disciplines. First, prayer. Prayer is a way to experience the presence of God. Not long ago, I learned that there are a number of prayer apps available for our smartphones. I don't know how they work, but I hope there's more involved than simply typing in a name and clicking send. <laughs> because I don't know whether the Verizon network actually reaches as far as heaven. But you know, I do use my smartphone. I, I use the notes section in my iPhone to keep a prayer list. And when I find myself between appointments, I can look at the list and take a few moments to pray. And if praying is something you find awkward or uncomfortable, as I do, I have great news. We don't have to be clever or wise or well-spoken. We only need to be willing. If we try to enter into a greater awareness of the presence of God, God will meet us more than halfway. In the eighth chapter of Romans, the Apostle Paul promises that the Spirit helps us in our weakness. The Spirit intercedes with sighs too deep for words. All we have to do is show up. Second, meditation. Here's another confession. Meditation has been elusive for most of my life, mostly because I make it more complicated than it has to be. Just try to set aside a few moments each day, not as an obligation, but as a gift to yourself to be aware of the presence of God. You might take a walk or simply focus on your breathing or focus your attention on the flame of a candle or an icon or the sunlight shining through the leaves or branches of a tree. Give yourself the gift of a few moments to share and be aware of God's presence, God's love in your life. And third, fasting. For most of my life, I thought the idea of giving up something for Lent was that the experience of deprivation would call to mind the sufferings of Christ, or as Alicia just said, would remind us that Jesus did in fact give up all. And any time I struggled with my fasting, I felt guilty. But this isn't about guilt. Last weekend, eight of our youth fasted for 30 hours to raise funds to fight hunger, an experience that brought into focus that fasting can serve more than one purpose. It can remind us of the sufferings of others, and it can also remind us that we need God. Struggling with a fast, whether we're trying to give up sweets or social media or gossip, isn't an occasion for guilt. It's an opportunity to rely on God for help. Asking for help isn't something I do well. And you know, I don't think the story about the fall of humanity is really about a forbidden fruit. For me, it's more about self-reliance, something that has reached epidemic proportions in Northern Virginia these days. It's important to remember that when Adam, what Adam and Eve found so tempting about the fruit wasn't just that they weren't supposed to eat it, although I have to admit that would be temptation enough for me. But as Richard just read to us, the serpent told them that God didn't want them to eat the 
fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil because God knew if they did, they would know everything that God knows. In other words, if they ate the fruit, they wouldn't need God. So I tend to think of the tree of knowledge of good and evil as the tree of who needs God or the tree of I've got this. Fasting can remind me that I really don't have everything under control, that I really do need God. And if I struggle when I'm fasting, it seems to open up a little bit more room in my life for God. This morning's gospel lesson reminds us that we worship a God who has been tempted as we are tempted, who has struggled as we have struggled, who has suffered as we have suffered in order to bridge the gap between us. And so as we begin this season of Lent, remembering the 40 days that Jesus spent in the wilderness, let us draw closer to God through prayer and meditation, and fasting. Amen.